I have just one quick announcement about something that's coming, a change that's coming in a few weeks for us. We are going to be going to two services. And this is a change for going like back to the old normal. Back a few years ago, we, we switched to one service during COVID and um, are excited to go back. But I remember... When I, when we were initially going to one, I thought, if we do this right, when we have to go back to two, we're going to be sad to go back to two. And it's kind of how I feel, if I'm honest. Like, I've so loved having our just intimate lunches together, all of us together. We're going to keep doing that. That is the plan. But we're going to go back to two services, one at 9 and one at 1045, kind of how we used to do before. So um, starting back up on the 10th of September. So we're not going to do it for the next two weeks. But the, the week after that, on the 10th, we're going to be going to two services. Some of you are delighted, you that like the, the early morning service. You've been nudging me for a little while. But um, we really, I think, just deep down go, we want to be a place where there is room, where we have got uh, just that sense of invitation and welcome. And so, um, anyways, little switch. Put that on your calendar, September 10th, going back to 9 and 1045. Um, so I, I thought I'd just tell you a quick story about something that happens to uh, to Chuck and I yesterday. We uh, Chuck and I were surfing down in San Clemente and got chased out of the water. And um, this this was, I think, a first for both of us. I'm sitting there. We're both sitting there. We're chatting, and Chuck all of a sudden goes, what's that? And we kind of, like, go over one more wave and look up, and here's just this dorsal fin. About like back in the church towards us, and we just both like paused, and then I looked at Chuck, and I think I said, "Oh shoot," or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and we swung our boards and just straight in. Well, first what we did is we paddled over and like put some people in between us, and, the, <laughs> and then went in, but. I, I was thinking, you know, the, the the truth is, like, as far as sharks go, um, I remember watching this video, and this guy said, there's a way to check if there's sharks in the water. He said, take a spoon, you go down, you dip it in the ocean, and you taste it. If it's salty, there are sharks in the water. <laughs> And I mean, I've heard that, I understand that. The truth is, I don't believe that. I choose not to. It's my prerogative. I just, when I surf, choose to believe that there's not sharks. And it works for me most of the time. It just didn't work yesterday, right? And the truth is that um, we live in this world where we have quite a bit of freedom to determine what we believe. We get to choose. We get to see reality the way we ideally would see it. In fact, even we get on social media and present the very best image of reality that we can forward. But but that's not actually reality, is it? And um, as Dallas Willard would say, reality actually tends to be what we bump into when we're wrong. Right? It's that consequence that hits us when we're so desperate to see it one way and are forced to face the reality that comes crashing in. And we took some time and just as a congregation studied this idea of wisdom throughout Scripture. And 
what you find is that wisdom really at the root of it is a, is a humility, a posture of accepting an objective reality as opposed to my own, seeing the way that things are truly as opposed to the way that I would like them to be. The wise do this. They've gained an appetite for that, right? That they prefer truth over the way that they would want it to be. Meaning that's the sort of gritty reality that when we take it into account, our life goes better. We're able to have discernment, to navigate wisely, to see things coming. When we live in that kind of reality, that sort of wisdom is actually where we flourish. It's where we grow. And that so often we spend our lives avoiding that kind of thing. And as a result, it creates a distortion that ends up trapping us. It traps us in our own sort of imaginary world that we have a God who is constantly inviting us to see the truth and for that truth to set us free. I loved how Beth talked last week about following this thread. And to me, that that thread of what God is doing is often we have to search for it. And in fact, maybe by design that God will say, you will find me if you search with your whole heart, that wisdom is there and available, but must be pursued, that we have to set our minds on that sort of focus. We have to wake up with that every day, that today is a day of pursuing truth. Today is a day of pursuing wisdom. Today is a day of finding that thread. And so often it's hidden in the midst of the consequences, in the midst of the reality, to find what God is doing. But every once in a while, we see it. And we see it so clearly. I am kind of excited with a little blessing that Toby did this morning. I raised my hand. I'm teaching a class this year. Um, It's this kind of a new thing for me. The the seminary where I did my doctorate asked if I would come teach a class. And so it's going to be online. But I'm thrilled to be able to do it. And it's about the intersection of leadership and our own formation. Right? Where does, where does leadership and my sense of like self and identity intersect? And and one of the things that I get to do with this group of students is invite them to examine a problem in their life, a challenge in their life or in their ministry, something that they face and to ask in that, God, what are you doing in me? through this. And this might sound like an optional assignment, but what I'm getting at is um, that's already happening whether you're writing the paper. That's already the invitation. And that it's not for seminary students alone. It's for all of us. In fact, every single one of you are in that class already. That all of you face challenges All of you have problems. All of you have things that you face. And you have a God who is doing something in the midst of that to shape you into who he's called you to be. And so the invitation today is, are we, or the question maybe fundamentally is, are we paying attention? Are we paying attention? And then are we leaning into that work with trust? And today we're using as our passage um, my favorite story in the Bible. And uh, some of you know this already because I've said that before, but it's the story of Joseph. And as a child, I, I 
always loved this story the most. And I think it's because, I mean, it's, we get, it's one of the longest told stories in scripture. Um, takes place over multiple chapters throughout. It, we see the development of this young man into this leader that God has designed. And we see in him this, he's an exemplary character in discernment and sensitivity. Ultimately in deep godly character. But we're able to watch through his life how it's formed. How God takes and shapes and molds this heart through trials and difficulties and challenges. And let's be honest, through like deep betrayal and broken family systems and all of these things, we're going to see a God who weaves together a story that is affecting the world on so many different levels. And so I, I just want to start at, at kind of the beginning of this story and uh, this little excerpt because it's going to be referred to in kind of the passages that we're going to look to later. This is Genesis 37, and um, I'm just going to read it for you. Um, the, the story of the coat, the story of the dream, this is where it begins. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. He's that guy, right? Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Israel is Jacob, who we were just talking about a few weeks ago, the one who suffered under the favoritism of his father for another. So um, the apple doesn't far, fall far from the tree here. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheep. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And, and I'm going to end this part there. And um, just want to sort of tell to us the rest of a story, a story that's probably very familiar. But, but once again, we see right off the bat the broken family system. The favoritism of the father, the neglect of the other sons, the anger and rage that it creates within them. And all these brothers just loathe Jacob and are so convinced that if they could just eliminate him, that there might be equity amongst the family. That 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 deprived love of their fathers could be theirs if they could just get rid of this dreamer. And so there's a moment when Joseph goes and finds his brothers and uh, travels afar to get to them, and they see their opportunity. They take him, they throw him in a pit, and they plot how they're going to kill their brother. And in the midst of that moment, Judah sees an opportunity. Judah, one of the older brothers, goes, wait, what if we sell the guy and get a little money out of the deal? And the brothers agree. They take advantage of that moment. They sell Joseph off. He's taken by these slave traders down to Egypt. He's put in the house of Potiphar, who's the man who purchases him. And in that place, we find that Joseph is a pretty skilled guy. He takes and organizes Potiphar's whole 
family household until he's like the guy in charge. Potiphar doesn't have to lift a finger. Everything runs smoothly because Joseph is super talented, really effective leader, takes advantage of the household, gets it all squared away. But then Potiphar's wife happens to take a fancy to Joseph, singles him out, pursues him. Joseph, I appreciate this, runs at one point, right? This man, like, caught in, like, on the verge of temptation, just simply flees. There's probably a great lesson right there alone for so many of us when we're facing sin and temptation, that sometimes if you just exit the room, just turn off your computer, whatever that thing is, right? Just handle that thing. But, but Joseph runs out, and it turns out he's accused of attempted rape, Potiphar throws him in jail. And, and, you know, a little tidbit, Potiphar could have just killed him, right? We find out later Potiphar knew he was innocent. So another broken system, poor Joseph, thrown in prison. And there what we find is he revamps the whole prison system. <laughs> Gets it all squared away. And, and I love this. If you're reading through carefully through this story, you find... In Potiphar's household, Joseph is blessed by God there in this place of like broken betrayal. He thrives. There, betrayed once again in this place of false accusation. He just leans into who he is in that situation until he's got freedom and he can kind of move with some anonymity amongst the other prisoners. And they start... recounting to him that they're experiencing some dreams. And Joseph, turns out, goes, oh, I know a little something about this. They're like, can you interpret these dreams? And Joseph, in a reviewing of his character, says, well, I can't, but God can. And so he listens to the dream of the baker. He listens to the dream of Pharaoh's wine taster and interprets it. (laughs) <laughs> one good, one bad, right? The baker, he's like, sorry, you're going to die. The, the wine taster, you're going to be set free. And he kind of goes, by the way, like, when you get there, if you could put in a word for me, because I don't belong here, I shouldn't be here. So the wine taster leaves, goes into Pharaoh's court, and forgets about Joseph. And something that I love in this story is that After this, in this place of forgottenness, it says that the love of God was with Joseph in prison. And, um, and, and that word has said, right? It's, it's this word that means in Hebrew, the, the, the intimate, unfailing, never ending love of God there with him in the midst of this. Joseph, the one with this prophecy, the one who was going to stand and reign and he spends like 11 years in this place of just Betrayal and brokenness and confusion. And what you find in that thread is that as far as we know, he never lets go of that thread. He just keeps following and following and following. Well, Pharaoh has a dream. The wine taster is like, oh, I know a guy, right? And they call Joseph in. Joseph comes in, listens to the dream of Pharaoh. Large cows thriving, then being devoured by skinny cows. Always makes me think of those ice cream sandwiches. But um, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, anyway, the skinny cows come in and um, devour the fat cows. And Joseph says, well, here's what it means. God's told me um, you're going to have 
Seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. If you don't take advantage of those seasons of prosperity, you're going to have nothing. In fact, the whole world is going to fall into a place of, um, of tragedy. But you have this unique opportunity. Store up that stuff. Store up the grain. Plan ahead. And I love this. He goes, like, find a guy to oversee that. Okay? And then he, like, goes, see you later. And he, like, turns to walk back to prison. And I, that moment to me is so powerful. This arrogant little kid who thought he was the center of the world, who was proud to wear the robe and be everybody's favorite, has been really so tempered through all of this. He's got this deep sensitivity of what God is doing. He's clearly got this skill set, and yet nothing in him postures for this opportunity. He's just so detached from it all. And of course, Pharaoh goes, you're the guy. Like, put that guy in charge. And so Joseph stands in that position and thrives. Does exactly what he set out to do. And sure enough, the prophecy comes true. There's Years of prosperity followed by deep famine and the world is starving. And who should come seeking grain but the betraying brothers? And in Genesis 42, it says, When Jacob, Israel, learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? (laughs) Clearly the family is so much healthier. Like, hey, why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Right? How much was fixed by getting rid of Joseph? Nothing. Just another favorite, another system broken. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. Now, now once again, here's, here's Joseph in this place where he has gone through this tempering process of God. This refining of his heart. And all of a sudden here he's presented this test, Joseph, with all the power, all the ability to exact justice. But what Joseph does is, I think, something very different. He he starts creating a sort of test. He accuses these guys of being spies, of being, you know, thieves. And and in the end, they're like, no, 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 we're like the good guys. But Joseph knows they're not. He knows what their hearts are like. And Joseph, I think, sort of wisely goes, let's just see about that. (laughs) Throws them in jail. Then pulls them out and says... Okay, I'm going to let all of you guys go except one. We're going to keep that guy in prison and see what you do. I want you to go back and I want you to bring your youngest brother with you. Somehow they let it slip that Benjamin wasn't there. So the brothers go back. They come to their father 
And they're like, we got to bring Benjamin. The, the, the Pharaoh insists upon it. And besides, one of your sons is back there in prison. So what choice do we have? And Jacob says, no, you can't touch Benjamin. I'm not going to lose Joseph and Benjamin. And then they run out of food again. And in desperation, the brothers go back, and this time they bring Benjamin. And Benjamin, you know, he's, he's along for the ride. Everything goes well. They enter back in. The brothers released. Joseph even serves them this banquet, this feast. Sends them home with all this grain. But then you remember how the story goes? He, he takes his chalice and he sneaks it into Benjamin's sack. And so as the brothers are heading back home to their father, all of a sudden now these Egyptian soldiers descend upon them. They're like, we're accusing you of stealing. They go through every sack, Benjamin's sack. They find the cop. And they're like, yeah, he's coming with us. And the brothers are like, okay, take all of us. And they're like, nah, just Benjamin. (laughs) And Judah steps forward. And he says, take me. And Joseph, in this moment, falls apart. And in our passage for today, it says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Joseph recounts to them like this was God's plan all along. Now, Uh, The first thing you see in this story is so much emotion. And I love kind of the the permission that this gives. What has this 11 years been like for Joseph? Like heartbreaking. He's carried inside of him all this pain. And I think in this moment, you see him so moved that he can't control the sobs. So much brokenness within Joseph is being healed in this moment. And in this, his heart is moved with compassion. He's seen Judah transformed. Judah, the one who set out to betray Joseph initially with the idea of taking money, becomes the one willing to give his life. And Joseph is moved with such compassion for his brothers. I love that question where he says, is my father still alive? But the interpretation of this would be like, is my dad okay? He knows Jacob is still alive. Is he okay? And to me, I think in this situation, this like incredible act of forgiveness, 
It's so unusual to what we see, isn't it? That most of us, you know, we've probably been dreaming of a moment like this where like, ha, karma, payback, beautiful payback on these brothers. A chance to make them squirm. And in terror they do, right? They're like so dismayed. And, you know, I, I think... I love that. They're already terrified. They're standing before Pharaoh's second in command. What, what does it mean when it says their hearts shake with terror? Well, it's like they haven't seen a shark. They've seen a ghost, right? It's a whole different thing. Joseph is not supposed to be alive. And here they are standing looking at this guy, and I can imagine like that face slowly transforming, and they're like, oh my gosh, it's you. This look of like, what is going on here? And and Joseph tells them that God has been doing something all along. And I think in this story, I love this reminder. Because this is the point, right? That that God is up to something. And and you see it in the contrast. He, He mentions those words twice each. That you sold me, but God sent me. You sold me, but God sent me. And we're like, which one is it? I think that scripture is kind of brilliant at going both, right? They did it, but God did it. These two things are somehow in a weird way able to coincide. And, And God was doing it not just for Joseph, not just for his brothers, not just for Jacob. God is doing something to bring provision and restoration for all the land. That this is what God does is he comes into these broken systems and he brings healing and restoration and wholeness. This is what God does. And he's doing it on individual levels. He's doing it on a family level. He's doing it for different countries. He's doing it for the world. All of these things kind of going on at once. This is the sort of reality that we're being invited to believe in. That this is the world where God is behind everything going on at work. To will and work for his pleasure. Or as Romans said, Greg preached on, and we know that all things work together for the good of those who love him have been called according to his purpose. And you could kind of take each character and spend time figuring out what is God doing in each one. Joseph, in his self-righteous arrogance, being taught humility, but also set free to really use his gifts and talents without ego and about without like self-possessiveness. Jacob, having to let go this time of his favorite son, hopefully a a softening taking place in his heart and giving up Benjamin. I love the change in Judah. God coming in and breaking his heart through conviction, taking him in a new direction. Every once in a while in life, we see these kind of things happen. And most of the time, this is all happening behind the curtain, right? I, I remember, we're out of time, but I remember this one Sunday, kind of like where Billy came up and spoke. 
um, we had a lady from one of our ministries, Gogo Grandmothers, come up and speak. Some of you were here this day. She goes, talked about Malawi and the AIDS orphans there and the work that they were doing there. And uh, we don't usually have, it, have this happen, but as she finished up and we prayed for her, a lady sitting over here raised her hand and said, can I say something? And said, sure. And she said, um, I'm not from Malawi, I'm from Rwanda, but I'm an AIDS orphan. And a ministry like what you're describing took part in pulling me out of that situation. And she said, now I'm here in the States and I'm a hospice nurse. And then she goes, and I just got to tell you guys, over the weekend, I'm so tired of watching people die that I finally told God, I'm not evangelizing anymore. I'm tired of this. I'm like tired of watching people die. And she goes, and the woman that I'm watching, who lives up here top of the world at the time, said, I know you know Jesus. Tell me about him. And she did. And this woman prayed to receive Christ. And she sat down. And somebody else stands up over here and goes, I've been praying for her for the last 10 years. It was all me. And you were like, and you saw everybody like, like, what is going on, right? That like, you saw in this moment all these like interconnected threads. What we don't see, but what is there and going on behind the curtain. I love that about God. I think God is so brilliant at that. I had this whole thing that I was going to do on uh, C.S. Lewis that we're going to maybe just flash on for one second because I've talked about this before, but this is what Lewis would say. You have these four categories. Simple good descending from God. Simple evil produced by rebellious creatures. Number three, the exploitation of that evil by God for his redemptive purposes. And number four, the complex good to which accepted suffering and repented sin contribute. This is the complexity and the mystery and what we end up having to just trust and put faith in. Because we see in the world beautiful, simple acts of good and generosity and compassion. And we see in the world just pure evil. But in all of this, what you have is a God not committing evil or creating evil, but a God who takes that and exploits even the evil for the sake of the good. This promise of God in redemption that he heals and restores, that even the wounds are turned into our authority in areas of, that we can like move towards others in compassion. And here's what I want to get at. I'm going to skip to the end. Jacob's a terrible father, like his terrible father. I love how these characters are just so human because some of you maybe in here are just starting your families and you're thinking, we're going to do it all right. And I think, God bless you. Go for it. (laughs) But the truth is, right, we all have had broken parents and we all become broken parents and we all suffer from a broken world. And so much of what God is doing is not like our professor teaching us how to love. It's like our father reparenting us, coming in as a good father 
and providing the love and the care that we need to be made whole, to stand upright, to be seen for who we truly are created to be. Which is why Jesus prays to the Father and says, Abba, and encourages us to do the same, Daddy. That we have a God who is not just a king, not just a Lord, but is an intimate Father that reparents us. Whatever the wounds, whatever the brokenness. And some of that hurts. In Hebrews 12, I'm going to go to the second passage now. It says this, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son in whom He receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment of all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And God is not coming in and giving us retribution and punishment. God is coming in and providing correction and providing for us the strength and the space to to endure through that. But what you see so beautifully in this story is Joseph in, in Potiphar's home is experiencing God's blessing there in this discipline. And then in prison, the intimate love of God that meets him there in that place of discipline. And God's discipline, God's correction is something that we need to pay attention to, to be saying, God, what is it that you're doing in my heart? And leaning into that work. Experiencing that with a sense of trust and courage. That he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And I see God do this in my life. And so often these deep longings that I have. Affirmation, let's say, from my parents. They're probably watching. Hi, you guys. But uh, longings that I have for certain things that... um that they've done their best to meet and yet can't fully meet. I see a God who goes out of His way to show that to me. Often in my self-protection, I hold that at arm's length. I'm afraid to receive all of that goodness to be true. We talk about how we want our church to be a place that is a safe space to heal and a brave space to grow, and I think it requires both. I think God comes in tenderly to bring healing, but often prods us towards something more. And in the story of Joseph, this prophecy comes true. He stands there in his brother's bow. And Joseph, in a place of freedom, is able to give forgiveness and be part of God's provision and salvation. These are the kind of lives that we're invited to live. This is the kind of work that God wants to do in our hearts. What we have to do is trust. And in those moments of struggle, remember what Joseph is going to say later to his brothers. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. 
So here's my questions for us today. What is the simple good in your life today? Where has God blessed you with gifts of protection and provision? I have a hesitancy to not claim those things. And I had a day where I just came to Patty the other day and I was like, my gosh, my day was filled with so many good things. And I want to like recognize that and say, God, thank you for today. All the little consolations through this day. Question two, where have you suffered simple evil? What are the scars you still bear? Where are you still bleeding? And this is important for us to know as well. Areas that still need to mend. So often we want to think that I'm finished and that's done and it's over. And we have a God who so often is going, well, we've got more work to do there. Let's get underneath that. And number three, consider how God might be using these things towards a greater purpose. Not to diminish the pain or deny the wrong, but instead to triumph over the evil, to exploit it for something glorious. Would you stand with me? And if you would like prayer, we are going to have people down front to pray with you. I know probably some of you are ready to scurry home. We don't have a meal today because, uh, you know, <laughs> who knows what's going to happen this afternoon. Be safe out there. Um, but I just want to pray these words over us as a blessing today. Uh, this is from the beginning of Hebrews where it talks about God as the author and perfecter. May you let him author and perfect your life. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame. And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. So that you might not grow weary and lose heart. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here, you guys.